Hi, I'm Eric Kaplan, a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And I'm Taylor Carman, a professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I lecture and write books about things like existentialism and the meaning of life. Yeah, and this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a philosophy podcast where we look at terrifying questions and we think about them and we try to find our way to a place where we and you can feel courageous. Okay, so Eric, what is our terrifying question for this week? Yeah, my terrifying question is as follows. What if the very best that I can do just isn't good enough? Wow, that's discouraging thought. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm letting my, I've decided to, to show vulnerability with you in the audience this week. Yeah. And I was thinking, like last time, I was like, what if I'm just not good enough at philosophy to be wasting everybody's time? <laughs> I mean, like, what if I don't know enough and we're just talking and it's just not good enough? Um, and it seems good enough to me, but it isn't. And it made me wonder, like, in general, what if the very best I can do just isn't as good as it should be? What if I'm not as good as I should be? And, and I find that terrifying. I would be upset if that's the case. I share this thought and this anxiety. Right. I constantly feel that. And I, yeah. I'm, I think this one might straddle the uneasy borderland between philosophy and therapy. And I'm going to mm. say that that's okay, but I'm not sure if it is. Maybe that's yet another example of it not being good enough. <laughs> another way that we're falling short. Uh, and I will yeah. say there's a couple, I think, I don't think we're going to conclude this one. I think this one is too hard, but if, if we even get a, a grasp on it, mm. I'll be pleased. Because one thing that I was thinking was, like, one way that I have of approaching this is to say, well, just feel good, man. <laughs> don't worry about what you should be doing. Just feel good. But in a weird way, that makes me anxious, too. Yeah. Like the idea that it doesn't matter, that there's no way in which I ought to be good, and that it's just, it doesn't matter. I don't care for that. No, I don't. I don't like that. I find that also terrifying. I don't either. That doesn't sound reassuring at all, because I think, wow, that means I just quit. I just give up, and then that's worse. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there is this interesting concept in um, in Judaism called the bread of shame, and it's sort of a theodicy. And I, and I wish I could I could attribute this to who it is if if our listeners are able to help us out that'd be great. But the idea is why did God create a world where we have to work? Because He's omnipotent, couldn't He just give us everything? And the answer was uh. that He couldn't because we'd feel ashamed. That the idea of just sitting around and getting stuff that you didn't work for isn't as good as having to work for things. So the most compassionate thing of of a Creator God to do is to be less giving, less generous, because it makes people feel bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one question you could ask is, why didn't he make us so that we didn't feel shame either? But I guess if you start taking away more and more of these human attributes and qualities, pretty soon we're just like horses or yeah, or something. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. so the Ramchal, Rabbi uh, Chaim Lutzato, who, who studied in Padua, I think, in the 1700s, his theodicy, and maybe he deserves an episode at some point, but his theodicy is... God wants to make a being that is as much like him as possible because he's perfectly good. So he creates a being that's as much like him as possible with the proviso that this being, since it's being created, is finite. And that's uh, us. So I think he would probably yeah. be like, if you examine the logic of being the maximally good finite being, 
you'd be less maximally good if you couldn't do anything. If you were just uh, like you said, like a horse or just some kind yeah. of a yeah. like a bee right. in a cell, like a bee <laughs> larva, just being fed yeah. <laughs> honey, like that wouldn't be as good. So, in, a, in an attempt to maximize goodness, the work thing makes sense to me though, because there is a great gratification to be had from work. It's a certain kind of satisfaction that's really incomparable. You can't get it from just enjoying right. yourself. So there's some kind of um okay. So <laughs> so the terrifying question of this week is what if the very best I can do isn't good enough? And we tried yeah. one thing which is don't worry about it. Just be happy. And neither of us was happy with that. And no, and now I think we're looking at a different thing. we're looking kind of at a different thing which is try to work hard enough that you'll be happy. Don't work so little that you'll feel guilty or so much that you're miserable. And if you work that amount, then what you do is good enough. Yeah. In other words, it's this weird sort of extra, a more sophisticated form of hedonism. Right. Just give yourself a task that's hard enough to constantly be a little bit out of reach, but not so hard that um, you're miserable. And that's what you ought to do therapeutically. And the philosophy will follow from the therapy. What do you think about that? Well, there's some of this that's really out of your control, though, right? Because I can imagine putting an enormous amount of effort and energy into something and being exhausted by the end of the day and still feeling like I did a crummy job and I won't be happy. And, and so, furthermore, yeah. you could have done a crummy job. Yeah, you yeah. could not just feel like you did a crummy, yeah. <laughs> a crummy job. You could have actually done <laughs> might, a crummy job. It might actually be you true. Could have worked. I could say to a good friend... I feel like I did a crummy job, and my close friend would say, you know what? You did. Right. Yeah. That's the difference between a friend and a flatterer, according <laughs> exactly. to Plutarch. That the friend will actually tell you yeah. if you stink, yeah. and the flatterer won't. That's true. I don't want somebody to just say, no, you did great. You were fine. It was okay. Everybody loved you. You don't want you that. You don't want that. I mean, there is something encouraging about somebody saying, do the best you can, and that'll be good enough. Like, don't knock yourself out holding yourself up to an impossible standard. At least you did the best you could. There's something right about that sort of consolation. Now, I'm just going to be I'm just going to be like Mr. Anxiety. today. That's good. Okay, because I'm good. wondering yeah. whether like if you hold yourself to an impossible standard and kill yourself, you might, if you're lucky, do something OK. And if you if you don't hold yourself to an impossible standard, <laughs> you'll just end up doing crap. That's my worry. Uh, I see. So it sounds like in, it's two extremes, but there's got to be something somewhere. One would hope. Right. Um, by um, the way, I, I when we when yeah. we talked about doing this, I attributed the following insight to this sociologist of religion, Emil Durkheim, and you said, "Where did he say that?" Which is a really good question. And Again, if I was better, oh. I would know the answer, but I don't. But I know that somewhere <laughs> Emil Durkheim said the following. Uh -huh. What he said was, there's always going to be crime. That was the argument. Oh, yeah. I think it might be in his essay on suicide. Yeah. There will always be crime because even in a world of saints, they will just pitch their standards up higher so that in a world oh, of saints, yeah. the crime in our world, the crime is, is let's say, in the case of Donald Trump and Jared Kushner, taking money from a murderous regime like the Saudis. Mm -hmm. That's a crime. Yeah. But in a world of saints, no one would even think of doing that because it's so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. but, <laughs> but somebody will be like, 
he slept for an extra minute before <laughs> prayers. Yeah. What a hateful criminal. Yeah. Indulging in his slothful appetites rather than, <laughs> we don't need to say these are theistic saints. It could be like, you know, rather than getting up at six o'clock for the self-criticism session about global warming and climate change, he slept an extra minute. What a demon. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. What a rogue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Durkheim's idea is that certain people are are morally very hard on themselves and presumably it'll be a little bit of a bell curve and those people who are right. morally very hard on themselves will always be dissatisfied yeah and, and that might be true right so everything gets ratcheted up no matter how virtuous everybody becomes yeah. the laws everything will sort of be catching up. up to them in order to be yeah see because if the if the line disappeared between good and bad behavior or right and wrong or whatever there'd be no check uh, you wouldn't know when you're sloughing off or slacking. And, right. Yeah. Right. But how do you know when you're slacking off? Yeah. When you do a work, like yeah. you're working on this thing about Heidegger and metaphysics. Yeah. How do you decide that it's good enough to send to your publisher? Uh, good question. I, when I'm exhausted and I feel like I don't have anything more to say and that's the best I can do and I quit. Any more work on this is going to be kind of fruitless. I've sort of run out of gas, and I've said what I need to say, and just like enough is enough. Well, those are two different things, mm. right? One of them is you've run out of gas, and possibly if you went up to Esalen and soaked in hot springs for two weeks, you'd get more gas. Um, <laughs> but then the other one oh, is, I see. No, is not... it's, more intrinsic, it's more intrinsic to the project. You've said all that needs to be said about Heidegger and metaphysics. That's what I meant. What I really meant was I've said everything I have to say on this subject, and I can keep sort of tweaking things and you know forever. Uh, but, um, yeah, I didn't mean I'm just out of energy. I mean... Um, I see what you're saying. I, you know, I finished it. But, yeah, I rarely finish a project like this feeling like triumphant and victorious running across the finish line. And I really feel no, like you, I'm done. You know, All right, I'm done triumphant. with this. Fine. <laughs> so <laughs> what enough. have been the moments in your career when you have felt triumphant? I felt triumphant when I got tenure. But I think that was much... That was, like, not really... Uh, that was more like just a sense of such relief that I didn't have to worry anymore about being fired or losing my job or having to look for a job. Right, it was right. just such a huge relief that I was a, the removal of a source of anxiety. So what I'm so what I want to ask is, mm. and, and I don't want to get you in trouble. No, it's okay. But like, did you did you have enough respect for the people granting you tenure that ah. you thought I'm actually pretty good at this? Because these people who who grant tenure, they don't give it to swans and, and forest <laughs> animals. You actually have to be a pretty good philosopher, and they've accepted me, and now, damn it, I actually am pretty good, because they say so. I wouldn't have gone quite that far, <laughs> but what I felt like was I respected them, and I respected the process, so it's not that I viewed it with contempt. In other words, I thought the, whole, I thought the result was the outcome of a lot of hard work and a lot of luck, and some good judgment and some, you know, just I just felt like it was such a minefield that I got through that it was just a nice result. And it was somewhere in between. I mean, hey, here's an interesting thing. I've never quite understood this about myself, but um, I got tenure. And then not very long after that, I got promoted to full professor, which was very nice. But by that time, I was sick of being promoted to things. And I was sick of submitting statements and my CV and letters of recommendation being compiled and it going through a committee and everything. And even though it was a nice thing to have happen, I had I was much more cynical about it at that point. I, so I'm bringing this up and we're going to take a little break. The reason I'm bringing it up is I'm trying to figure out to what extent we judge and ought to judge good enough 
by taking cues from other people in our social circle. And I think we do it a lot, uh -huh. but I'm not convinced we ought to do yeah. it as much as we do. But in any case, let's take a little break. Okay, we took a little break. We're talking about what if the very best I can do just isn't good enough. Yeah. And I'm considering the possibility, like, like, here's an example. I've, I've written, I've written like short stories that I think are pretty damn good mm -hmm. and that no one has ever published them. <laughs> and I, and I go down this list of tiny magazines that I literally haven't heard of and I send it off to them uh -huh. and they get rejected. Huh. And then I was also writing for the big bang theory, mm -hmm. which was like the, the number one scripted show on TV yeah. for a number of years. It was like hundreds of millions of fans. And I can get my head turned by the hundreds of millions of fans, mm. but maybe I shouldn't mm. because I sort of think like, like, I guess, I guess what I'm thinking is there's certain people from the past whom I admire who nobody liked them when they were alive mm -hmm. and nobody liked their work, Yeah, but they didn't care. They did it anyway. Yeah. And their work turned out to have been really good. Like one person I think of is like the, the science fiction author, Philip K. Dick. Mm. I mean, I guess he was well regarded in the world of science fiction, but uh, Jerry Pornell, he was lived around the corner from me. He said that Philip K. Dick and his wife were so poor that they literally were eating dog food. Wow. And maybe, maybe this is wrong, mm. but there's something admirable about sure. uh, pitching yourself against some objective standard rather than what the fads of your culture follow. Now, it's a little strange because many of the people who we think are great at their death or shortly after their death, everybody thought they were great. <laughs> You know, so, yeah. so, yeah. um, and then there's people who are overrated. Oh, who do you think were the people who were overrated? I've got a, a mental image in my mind, but it's a generic image and I'm not sure I can name it. Okay. Names. But are you, what is a mental image of sort of like very voluptuous looking ladies dressed as mythological characters being chased about <laughs> on, on no, a I'm giant canvas? Of, <laughs> I'm thinking of celebrities who were the big stars of their day. And then, you know, after they die, a few decades go by and hardly anybody remembers them. Right. But they were the big shots of their time. Okay, well, that's good. We don't want to. We don't want to criticize poor Rock Hudson here on this podcast. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I guess I sort of feel like... Um, no one's terribly excited these days about the career of Errol Flynn. Right. Now, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's maybe, yeah. I mean, it may be because, and I don't know why this is the case, but like um, the technology of an action movie in the thirties has been so thoroughly superseded yeah. that you'd have to have a sort of a cineast's interest to really be watching an Errol Flynn pirate movie. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. oh, and by the way, I do want to say that although we don't remember his or her name, Whoever painted those animals on the walls of the cave of Lascaux, oh, that really holds up. That, that's that was some good it's work. It's hard to yeah. imagine anything that we're doing. <laughs> how long? How old was that? It was like in Lascaux, those are like thirty-five thousand years. Well, no, I think the Lascaux paintings were more like eighteen thousand. Eighteen thousand. But they have since then discovered others more recently that are about twice as old as that, like thirty-some thousand. Thirty-six thousand. Like, yeah, so yeah, I yeah. mean that's a good thing to to sort of measure oneself by. <laughs> Can we do anything on this podcast? You're bound to be depressed and discouraged. Thirty-six thousand years from now, uh, people will still like. I've had a couple of other thoughts about about this topic though here's okay okay what are they so one of them 
to press on the discouraging side of it before we try and mm-hmm. claw our way out of the despair. Yeah, yeah, which I don't think we will, but let's, I'm, uh, okay, I'm well, pessimistic well, about this, okay, this well, one. So yeah. what I've been noticing about myself, even before you suggested this terrifying question for our podcast, is how frequently my ordinary thoughts from minute to minute are like self-justifying. Like, as if I'm answering, of, there's a voice in my head that's sort of like, why are you doing it this way? And what about, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of talking to it, I'm replying to it, like, I'm doing it this way because of this, because of that, because of that. It's like I've got an inner dialogue in my mind that's almost sort of answering an accusatory sort of critical. So I think I'm, I think I'm just internally extremely self-critical, is what I guess I'm saying. I think you are, too. And, I think um, you are, too. I think I am, too. And it's something you carry around with you. We've internalized it from something. I don't know if it's just parents or upbringing, or I think school intensifies it, especially graduate school. I bet school. it's your parents and your upbringing, if I had to, yeah, I, I, I kind of suspect leap. so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but those people you know who you think are fantastic, they're just like knocking the world dead mm-hmm. in the world of philosophy. Mm. Are they self-critical? Or are they more like well, like just whatever we imagine a, a seal is like, just I, glorying I, in its sealhood? I, I, there's no way to know. I, I mean, I really don't have any idea, but here's what I imagine. I imagine, well, you mm-hmm. know, if you seriously ask me, I think probably a lot of them are. Uh, but I, I have an image. I have an image of the ones that I really admire, or artists whom I really admire, who I suspect don't have this. And what I suspect is they're doing what they're doing mm-hmm. out of the sheer sort of joy and passion for it. They're kind of blissfully free of that sort of tormenting inner demon voice who's sort of castigating them all the time because it's actually very inhibiting. Mm-hmm. I think it keeps you from really doing your work in an uninhibited way because you have to quit thinking about whether everybody's going to be happy with right. it, everybody's going to like it, or it's good enough, and just you do it anyway. In other words, some of the people you were describing who uh, are really terrific at what they do, and you describe them as living up to some kind of objective standard instead of what everybody's expecting of them, there's a way in which that may be right. But I also think they're just driven by an internal kind of, if it's not exactly joy, it's something like maybe an addiction or compulsion to do what they do because that's where they get their satisfaction. And if people don't like it, maybe they just don't even, you know... There's what then they, what you know they can't waste their time worrying about whether everybody's going to love what they're doing. Yes, um, that and I I I suspect there are yes. artists and philosophers and people who are like that, and I envy that because I think that's that would be liberating. Right. There's a quote from Emerson: "I want to write whim on the lintel of my doorpost," and that's an interesting thing because traditionally, what's written on the name of your doorpost is the name of God to protect you. Shaddai. Ah, Ralph ah. Waldo Emerson says, I'm going to write whim on the lintel of my mm. doorpost, W-H-I-M, whim. Uh, huh. And I hope it's not whim, but I can't uh-huh. waste the day in explaining. And that makes me think that maybe the solution to this conundrum is, I'm, I'm trying to think of a non-gendered way, put one's adult pants mm-hmm. on <laughs> and stop worrying if it's not good enough just do it (laughs) you know yeah right that's right i think so and i think you know to put on the sort of philosophical hat Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. a little bit and to step back from the subjective anxiety yeah yeah you have to ask yourself like what after all is good enough Uh like who decides that and who's defined it because i think this inner voice i carry around with me is so disembodied and so nobody in particular Sometimes I find myself stopping thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> like, like, Here's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. How old do you think the inner voice is? 
Not how long ago have you been hearing it? Older than me, yeah. I mean, I think this right. is good. I think that's evidence actually that it's not parental. True. Yeah, because <laughs> we think of it as a parental voice. Yeah, but if you look at the kind of thinking that it does, it's actually a parental voice as assimilated and modeled by a child. Yes, yep. because the yep. things mm-hmm. that the things that the critical inner voice says are never terribly intelligent <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean yeah that's right it, it, in fact there's something kind of unintelligible about them because and you don't question them it's like this is a kind of unquestioned authority of like why are you doing it this way kind of voice and right um, right it's like yeah it's like won't you feel dumb but it's not yeah. like well strictly speaking taylor you really <laughs> should read this other book by by you know data kind or something yeah. like it doesn't say that kind of thing it doesn't say, really say reasonable things no so right here's yeah. my question yeah. then yeah if we were to design an educational system that would cause people to be these sort of joyous creators or joyous embracers of the good because by the way i don't think you have to be a creator you could right you could you could be a you know yeah. sell uh you know, shares in an HMO, like you could do anything yeah. with joy and you could do it really well or really poorly or mm-hmm. really slapdash Yeah. Um, if we were to design an educational system that would foster that, what would it look like? Oh, I don't know. See, but here's where my anxiety starts creeping in again, too, because I don't want to give up mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Uh, anxiety of sort of mediocrity and slacking off. Because when I look at people who are too glib and self-satisfied with their own work and don't care enough about whether they're not meeting a standard of excellence or paying attention to what other people think about something. I don't really like that. I mean, I can't say I really... So when I say I envy the people who are somehow free of this inhibiting voice, I think I want to have both. I want to have a balance of like um, an abhorrence of mediocrity and laziness and glibness, but while at the same time being able to sort of get on with stuff without inhibition and and this kind of super ego sort of uh, right torment right so, so it's tricky it's a tricky balance yeah it's interesting now i feel like it's getting philosophical because how can you have both how can you have both joy and an abhorrence of crap or an abhorrence of mediocrity right is there anything philosophical to be said about that? I'm not sure, except I, I kind of worry that maybe, and maybe it's not the worst thing in the world, it's just a constant, unsteady kind of compromise. And maybe it'll be different for every different person slightly, like where the line is. But um, yeah, it may just be two competing values that you have to balance the best you can. And um, So is this related to Kierkegaard's thing? About stretching in the contradiction? Ah, yeah, right. Maybe the tension is actually productive, you mean, somehow. Because he's got this idea of temporality and eternity. Yeah. And he says the temptation is to say, I'm going to plunk down on temporality. Yeah. Which in our story might be um, the joy in the moment. Right, right. Or I'm going to plunk down on eternity. I don't know. I could I could think of a way where I would switch them. But in any case, yeah, yeah, um, right. Just the structural feature that when you find two values that seem to be in conflict, you should say as they do in improv, yes and, uh-huh. we, like yes, we want both of them. Right. We're not going to pick. Is that okay? I guess. I mean, like I say, in a way, it's kind of an uh, unexciting view, but it may be just the the truth. Uh, there's no real harmonizing of these two forces, right? These two principles or whatever they are. There's no way to ever get them in total harmony. 
but uh, there are two little there are two pitfalls that you have to steer between. Maybe that's the best I can manage. Right. Uh, so I'm going to raise I'm going to raise this question again, maybe in a slightly different way. Let's say we think that people need a combination of self love and healthy self criticism. Yeah. It seems to me that in many institutions like philosophy grad school, there's too much self criticism and not enough training and self love and joy. Uh, you know, I hesitate to make a generalization because, of course, you run into students who are so self-confident and glib that you sort of want to say, you don't have enough self-criticism. You want to smack them. <laughs> That's right. You want to smack them some, down. And some of them are right. crippled by their self-doubt, self-criticism, their conscience, you know, their sort of intellectual superegos. And so, so I think different people fall on different places in this spectrum. So the wise, the wise teacher will provide the best sort of medicine yeah. to the one who's overweening. Yeah. He or she will slap that person down. <laughs> and to the one who is afraid, he or she will come here, honey. I think we all know. Come here, sweetie. Your ideas are good. We all know there are students who don't seem to be able to hear criticism. I mean, they're just not, their ears are not open enough to criticism. And there are others who are so inhibited that they're they're hearing criticism even when it's not being delivered. The thing I'm trying to sort of put my finger on here is the idea that we can these things can turn into phantoms. Like you think you think everybody knows the standards but you. And that there's some secret code that if you could just unlock it, you would know that this is what's good enough. But in a way there isn't. Right. And and when you have enough experience of the an intellectual world, you know, a milieu, a, a generation, a profession, a, you know, the guild you're in, you come to see that there's wide divergence of people's judgments, all of whom seem perfectly authoritative and in a position to pronounce, and they disagree wildly about what's good and what isn't and where the line is drawn. And once you actually see that that's how it works, you can also relax a bit because you realize it's not as if everybody knows that this is the line, this is the standard of excellence, and everybody knows that, and you better figure that out so you know exactly where it is. Because it's not like that, actually. There's a huge amount of disagreement. So I'm getting lost, mm -hmm. because we were started off talking about how tough we should be on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the answer seemed to be a mixture of loving and discipline, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. sounds right. But then you then said, and furthermore, nobody knows which way is up. And, <laughs> no, and I, I don't mean know to how say to put that. those two ideas I, well, that's together. That's putting it more strongly than I meant to say right. it. What I meant to say is there's no one place where the bar is. So what do you think about forum shopping? Should I then, like, find the person who's got the yardstick that makes me look the tallest? <laughs> well, not exactly. But I do think you need to be among the people whose standards help you do the work you want to do. And how did you find those people? Uh, well, it was sort of luck, but also sort of looking around. Like, I knew that I wasn't going to go to UCLA and probably not Princeton and probably not a couple of other places where there was no European philosophy being done because for most of those people in those departments, what I did was going to look no good. Well, I definitely felt that. When I was at Columbia yeah. and I was studying with Isaac Levi, Yeah. And Isaac and I was like, Isaac Levi, Professor Levi, what should I do with my academic career? Mm. And he's like, what I think you should do is find some particular area of mathematical um, probability theory and become really good at it. And I thought, I don't think I will. I think I'm going to spend a lot of time and not be terribly good at it. So I sort of interesting. I didn't follow that route. But in the back of my mind, I thought maybe I was just being self-indulgent. Maybe if I was a really 
good philosopher, I would have learned the Isaac oh. Levi school. I got this thick green book by him called The Enterprise of Knowledge. Right. And it, it was all about very serious things. I thought, like, um, how do you figure out if a if a nuclear power plant is going to explode? And I was like, that would be a good thing. I want to talk about, like, like is God dead? And here's Isaac Levi <laughs> talking about whether a nuclear power plant is going to explode. And I was a little afraid that it was a bit dilettantish of me not to just run towards the the hard grueling thing that would make me feel bad but but i didn't i knew isaac because of course i was a colleague i mean much after yes. you were a student here but i think i had a very from early on in spite of what i was saying before about super ego not putting it too strongly to say tormenting but nagging kind of like voice in my mm -hmm. head is this good enough is this good enough i never felt tempted to compete with people in a field where i knew i was going to come out as average mm -hmm. And so I was always perfectly selfish in pursuing the philosophical interests that I wanted to pursue. Heidegger, Nietzsche, European philosophy, Kierkegaard. I knew these things were not particularly popular, but I knew that's where I could excel. And I was always completely comfortable with that decision. I was never self-conscious about it. And that's lucky. I feel right. lucky that I had that kind of... I didn't care. Right. So maybe you had a calling. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe you were like, I would rather understand Nietzsche right. than have people think I'm great. You're like, it's just genuinely interesting to me, yeah. and I want to understand it. And and if people think I'm an idiot, like, could you yeah. see yourself, supposing supposing you had gone to, to, I don't know what particular hoops you had jumped through, but supposing like a bunch of really serious analytic philosophers had taken over the department yeah. and they kicked you out, <laughs> what do you think would have happened to you? Oh, I don't know. See, here's another thing. Like, could you, could you see yourself being no. like a... A high school English teacher. I've back in back in Montana. Here's something else. Montana, right? Or Wyoming? Wyoming. Montana. Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. Wyoming. Wyoming. Yeah. You're a high school English teacher back in Wyoming. No. And you just every night you think about Nietzsche. I, I couldn't see that, but let me answer that in two ways. One is to say, ever since I, you know, early on, I just got interested in philosophy and I pursued it because I loved it, and I never got into it to compete with anybody. Mm -hmm. So I was never interested in being competitive in a sort of right. peer group or generation or whatever. So I had no interest in like doing philosophy of language or logic or philosophy of science or whatever kind of the mainstream topics were to sort of rise to the top of the class and be the star. I was totally not interested in that, whatever, for better or worse. But the other thing is that I never, you know, I had friends who had plan B or plan C, like if this doesn't work out, I'm going to go to law school or I'm going to do this. And I never had a plan B. I couldn't imagine myself doing anything other than what I was doing. And I was not proud of this because I thought it seems like a failure of imagination on my part. Like you had this other career that you took, you know, in TV writing and comedy writing and so on. I never felt like I had anything mm -hmm. I could fall back on. And so it had better be this because this is my only option. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it does mean I was completely committed to it. But not to be competitive or prestigious or respected even really, but it's just because this is the thing I wanted to do and I was going to do it and, and um, you know, hopefully make a living. But nevertheless, worried <laughs> that I was going to maybe do it badly instead of well, but not measured against anybody else's achievement, but just because... Um, so measured against yeah. what? And by the way... If you're trying to teach the students and they just slam it back in your face and they're just like, all we care about is, I don't know, computer science and sociology. Um, do you do you ever feel that that's, they're just bad at learning? <laughs> I'm not sure how often I get that. That doesn't happen. Uh, okay. 
I get bored blank looks. Here's a question. But, yeah. Here's a question I'm sort of searching okay. for. Yeah. Or I'm trying to formulate, which is we can judge our success by external markers of how well we do. Yeah. So for example, I could be like, my script is good if the audience likes it and wants to watch it next week. Or I could be like, huh, the audience liked it and wants to watch it next week, but it's actually not that good. The audience is just being too easily pleased. Yeah. Or the opposite, a, a more obnoxious version or maybe equally obnoxious version is the audience didn't like that. Mm. Well, they should have, because uh -huh. it was pretty great. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So the question is, if you're not judging success by whether you're objectively getting high performance marks from your supervisor or your consumers, which kind of, they're allied, they're on the same team. Yeah. Your supervisors and the consumers ideally are on the same team. So, so your dean and the students are on the same team. If I'm on a show, the showrunner and the audience, they're kind of on the same team. But is there another way to do it of just like asking the question, is it just good or is that a kind of narcissistic illusion? Yeah, I don't know. I've often had a feeling like some of the best things I've ever written, people kind of shrugged their shoulders and thought, meh. And I thought, this was really good. I've had that experience uh, often enough. Well, what you don't need to pick a single one, but what's one of the ones that's what is the best thing you've ever written? I think, um, so I keep mentioning this book I'm supposedly writing on Heidegger and metaphysics. The first time I, Heidegger and metaphysics. I sort of formulated this kind of idea about how in the late 1930s, Heidegger suddenly started saying he was overcoming metaphysics and he was not doing metaphysics. And it was a real, I think, an about face. I thought this was really important breakthrough that I made. And when I first presented it at a little conference of our group, Almost everybody around the room said, oh, this is just a change of jargon. This is just a terminological change, and it's not substantive. Mm -hmm. And I could see why they said that, but I had a whole story about why it wasn't just a jargon thing. And I think it didn't, in a way, they were very nice about it, but it didn't strike them as an important breakthrough of any kind. But I was sure that it was. I mean, I still think so. I've, I, I've had that experience in writing because I've, I've sometimes given like a one-sentence description of a show, and whatever business people I'm working with, their agents, they don't care. And then I'll think, no, I was right. I figured out a very, very good thing, but I just haven't explained it yet. But I, I sort of know. Yeah. Anyway, let's take a break. Maybe we can come back and figure out what is the nature of those moments when things are really, really good yeah. and you don't need anyone to tell you about right, it. Right, okay, right. let's take a break and we'll talk about that when we come back. Okay, well, welcome back. This has been uh, a terrifying question. And the terrifying question is, what if the very best I can do just isn't good enough? And I'm, I'm lost. On, I'm still a bit lost in this topic. And I'm going to look. And part of the reason that I'm lost is that I'm having trouble telling the difference between how much of this is just self-help psychology and how much of it is philosophy. And I'm looking back on this question and saying like, okay, there's a sense in which we want to have the capacity to succeed or fail. We don't want to think our way to a position where 
everything we do is just lovely because we're so yeah. yummy. Yeah. Like I sometimes hear that from like therapy kind of people. Like you should just think that everything you do is just lovely and yummy. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And, and I think that in a weird way that would be yep. a bummer. Yeah, I agree. But then I also think a feeling of I'm so jazzed that I just said that. I can't believe I just thought that. That's really cool. And no one can take it away from me. And if people think it's not good, they're just wrong. That's really important too. Yep. And then we were thinking like, huh, sometimes there are times when you do something and you don't even need to ask if it's good enough. It's almost like the question doesn't arise. Yeah, right. It's just, you just feel very like locked into something. Here's something I wanted to say earlier that is more of a philosophical kind of idea mm -hmm. rather than I think just therapeutic one. Yeah, yeah, good. You might ask the question whether there are purely objective and impersonal or not somehow socially constructed standards of excellence. And I suspect that there aren't really any. Mm -hmm. That's to say that all standards of excellence are somehow emerge from a collective consensus or agreement about where the bar should be on mm -hmm. some particular undertaking. Like who determines how good a book has to be or an article or a piece of music or a painting? It's always socially embedded in, in some context or milieu. And when you occupy a social world, when you inhabit a social world, you absorb this collective sense of what the standards are and so on. And the process of being at home in that world means that you've internalized those standards. Now, you come to think of them as being kind of fixed, but that's because you've you have a place in this world. And the thing that can be crippling is to then sort of reify that or turn it into a kind of like before what I was describing is this sort of demon or phantom that you think is invisible hovering there and you just have to determine exactly where it is. But there's no truth about exactly where it is because it's socially constituted. It's part of a historical world. These things change drastically generation to generation and from culture to culture. So I think the standards that are making you feel crummy about not being good enough is a mirage. And the way to free yourself from that is to realize that the way to be at home in this world and be comfortable with your own sense of the standards is to remember that this is all just about where you belong in the world you're inhabiting and among your peers and your parents and your teachers and your students. And you come to recognize that there is no one place where the bar is set. That can be liberating. So do you just want to choose the right size pond to make you feel good? Well, so it's, it, like... it's not up to you to choose it, though, because you're thrown into these worlds and you don't choose them. And you also don't choose your own talents. So you have to actually also find out what it is you're good at and what you're not good at. I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. The things I'm not good at, I'm never going to feel very comfortable about my own abilities because I just know that, you know, I just never get a kind of traction on them. Whereas some things kind of come easily to me. And then I can do them well without too much effort or anxiety. Right. And I do think a lot of wisdom comes from just suddenly being honest with yourself about what you're good at and what you're not very good at so that you can be at home in your own talents or skills and then pursue those and be the person right, you right. were sort of destined to be. Right. You, you can't choose those things. You, as someone said, you don't choose your gifts. That's true. That's a nice That's way true. of putting it. Yeah, there's a, there's a book by Cal Newport, which I like, where he says, don't follow your passion. Just be very opportunistic and figure out what are those areas where people think what you're doing is really valued, is really a value add. Go there and then kind of jump from opportunity to opportunity. 
He says that that's actually a better recipe for success and happiness than deciding at the age of 17. It, it definitely is a better recipe for success. It might be a little cynical. I wouldn't want to devote my whole life to that. But I see what this meant by that because I, I detect— But in a weird way, you sure have did it. I did it. Yes, exactly right. But, <laughs> you, but it was, yeah. I was lucky because my passions kind of coincided with my skills. Mm-hmm. What I like about the Heidegger idea about your throne—Heidegger didn't say this, but I really believe that you're thrown into your character— Mm-hmm. You you don't choose the kind of person you are, really. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easier to then be at peace with the standards of the quality of your work in that case because you're at home yeah. in your person and in your in the world, hopefully. Right. I guess, so one thing that I was thinking was, like, the following person would be wrong. If you're going for a walk holding your kid's hand, you go for a walk in nature, and then at the end of the day, you're like, I bet there's people who are much better kid handholders than me. Mm-hmm. So it was a sort of a wasted day because I'm not terribly good at kid handholding. <laughs> and this kid is just not terribly good at handholding or appreciating nature. Uh, this was kind of a, a wasted day. Uh, so this is lunacy, yeah. right? There's certain parts of life which we don't want to we don't want to turn them into a sport. <laughs> we don't want exactly. to turn them into a contest. Yeah, yeah. And that's foolishness. That's exactly. If you try to turn every aspect of your mm-hmm. life into a contest, that's for sure. That's silly. And then there's other aspects of life where we do want to turn them into a contest. Mm. And, and we sort of feel like, hey, the life of uh, the sculptor in Florence under the Medicis or Pericle in Athens, like they were always trying to win contests. Oh, I don't like that. And they came I, up with some pretty good... Yeah, you don't like it no, at all. I, even, I, I don't... Even, even knowing that like Sophocles was trying to win best play of the year really, at the Dionysian I Festival. I really don't. I hate that. I hate the idea that it's a contest or competition. I know that it, it can produce some really great results, but I, I don't like it at all. So how do you think about it? A lot of our lives would be much better if people just had the freedom to produce and create what they wanted and everybody gave up this idea that it's a contest or a competition. Okay. So then then what? how do you know it's really good? How do you know it's really good? Oh, uh, I don't know. It moves you. It stimulates your imagination. It's... It, it, something you've never seen before and 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 actually there's also i mean it's never just a purely individual judgment it's also that you experience this with other people that you're all kind of excited by this thing so it's like a really good party yeah a good party a, good a really concert, good party or and, like a cool music scene and there will again there will always be radical disagreements there's going to be a diversity of opinion no matter what so there's no nobody's entitled or qualified to give out the first prizes i hate like academy awards and nobel prizes and all these prizes that are pretending to impose an objective standard i just hate that culture entirely can i offer one more thought about this subject that just occurs to me very important We've been talking about this kind of self-consciousness about standards mm-hmm. and excellence and so on. And you and I are both maybe kind of hard on ourselves mm-hmm. out of habit and training yeah. to be self-critical and so on. The other danger of that, I've found, is that if you're very self-critical, you can end up being very cruel to the people around you. Oh, good Because point. it's very hard to hold yourself to these standards without also holding other people to the standards. And I've often found that I'm hard on other people when I'm really actually getting it out of my own system because I'm being hard on myself. Right. So one reason to be compassionate with yourself is because it actually makes it easier to be compassionate to other people, too. You can say this is, you know, it's a habit that bleeds over onto my treatment of other people, too. Right. So do you do you have a tip? If our listeners find they're being too hard on themselves, do you have a philosophical tip for how they can reframe? There's a kind of little exercise to sort of regard yourself. Uh, how do people put this? Maybe Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way. See yourself as a child that you need to be kind to and compassionate to. 
I don't think we can easily keep track of the line between our treatment of others and our treatment of ourselves. So I think in treating yourself that way, it sounds like a little self-indulgent, but I actually do think it's an exercise that will just make you a bit more humane in your treatment of other people too. Right. Yeah. So maybe what, what we can try and do, or I can try and do, is I'll try and treat the things that I say on this podcast as like a six-year-old saying them. Yeah. And I wouldn't scream at a six-year-old. No, right. But I might say, well, why don't you want to explore that idea a little more exactly right yeah yeah and i do think that's actually consistent with maintaining very high standards because you want to sort of in an it encouraging is. way sort of think look how good this could be if we follow it a little further and think about it more and yeah wouldn't that be nice i think it would be nice okay thanks jailer this is good i'm less terrified so <laughs> I, me I too. Hope people listening are less terrified too <laughs> okay peace out everyone come back uh, next time and and be unterrified see you next time okay bye bye podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen.